0: Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman and I'm Buzz Eisenberg and that was our intro music for Max Page who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association for a segment we love to call your state you that of course has expanded far beyond your state you because Max is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Max 135,000 signatures to tell the legislature that people don't want MCAS to be a graduation requirement from high school, 135,000. That's a lot of people who say, this is a horrible law whose time has come to, well, not be the law. Tell us what your reaction is.
1: Well, Bill, it was thrilling. Um, uh, Two days ago, uh, we held a press conference and delivered the last 20,000 signatures to the Secretary of State. And as you said, we have 135,000 total signatures. We expect of those uh, like 105,000 to be fully certified um, by the Secretary of State, which is well, well over the uh, nearly 75,000 required to make this a a ballot initiative on the November 2024 ballot. It was, it's thrilling. Uh, This is the most of any other ballot initiative. And remember Uber and Lyft who have more money than God um have were collecting as well and they they were not able to collect this many signature so it's a great sign of the support for eliminating a one time test as determining what uh, whether a student graduates or not and we are one of only eight states that still do this and several others are considering getting rid of it also along with us this year
0: to clarify mcas will still be used the test will still be given what will change is that the high stakes high stakes nature of it will not be f- uh, front and center. Do I have that that's, right?
1: That's exactly right. Having a standardized test every year from third grade on is a federal requirement. Um, and so whatever value there is um, to be able to have a diagnostic test, it will still be there. I would also note most districts have other kinds of tests as well for different subjects. Frankly, we are over testing students. But what this ballot initiative does is simply remove that high stakes element, which has led to more than 700 students a year not getting a diploma, even though they've passed all their classes and are ready for graduation according to the educators in that district, 700 a year, mostly students of color, low income students, students with disabilities, English language learners. But also beyond that, because there is this high stakes element, there is an intensity around which there's test prep, too much time devoted to the test itself and the test prep, uh, because of this high stakes that comes in the 10th grade when students have to pass, um, or or not graduate. So this is a big this is a big move, um, and a and a big moment. And we hope and we can see that the that the public supports this as we've known for years.
0: So Max Page, president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. This discussion brings me to a topic that I I want your opinion on and really would love your perspective on. Look, 135,000 people in the Commonwealth have just said to their legislatures, we shouldn't have this MCAS as a graduation requirement. This has been a topic that has been before the legislature for years and years and years and years. This is not news to the legislature, and yet they haven't done anything. And so the topic that returns to the people for action, the issue becomes the people's issue. And I'm wondering now whether or not given this outpouring of support to eliminate MCAS as a graduation requirement, whether the legislature will take action And perhaps you could, in answering that, could explain what the legislature has to do now, at least in terms of considering it.
1: So, thanks, Bill. Yes, it's important for people to know that while we have qualified for the November 2024 ballot, the way this process works is once we've qualified, this becomes a legislation. That's why it's a citizen's petition. We gather the signatures to put it before the legislature. So they will have they, the legislature will have to have a hearing probably the joint committee of education sometime winter, early spring, and they have to decide whether they are going to support this or not. And many, we know, we have, uh, we have a bill called the thrive act, which includes getting rid of the high stakes element of the MCAS, And that has, I think, close to 90 co sponsors in the legislature. And we have know that there's lots, lots of support for ending this high stakes element of the MCAS. So it is possible for the legislature to do the right thing and vote for this and we won't have to go to the ballot, but the MTA is and its allies are fully prepared to go to the ballot if necessary. So there is a chance this spring.
0: Okay, so I don't mean to be too naive or ignorant here, but I don't understand. Who's the opposition?
1: Well, there are, um, it's not so much in the legislature, particularly it is A series of ed reform business groups, the ones, the same groups that have, that were, that we crushed in question two. That was the charter ballot question back in 2016, where they wanted to privatize public education by endlessly expanding private charter schools. Uh, That's the same group. It's the, it's Democrats for ed reform. It's the mass business Alliance for education. It's also a collection of groups that stood like associated industries of Massachusetts and the high tech council um who stood against the fair share amendment that was our great victory a year ago where we asked the wealthy the wealthiest the very wealthiest that top one top half of one percent to pay a little bit more to fund our public schools colleges and transportation systems and has brought enormous gains already in the first year so it's a collection of ed reform groups and business groups that think they know better about education than do students educators and parents
2: Which, Max Page, this is Buzz, and that leads me to my sort of zoom out and look at the big picture question, which is 135,000, that's a remarkable number of people to sign on for a particular issue in these days when we're so concerned about apathy among voters. What's the takeaway? What have you learned? What has the MTA learned about how to sort of uh, stimulate activism around an important issue from this highly successful uh, initiative to garner signatures to put this on the ballot.
1: Um, I'll answer that buzz. but I do want to also know it's 135,000 signatures gathered in 8 weeks. Right. Wow. The way we have our system is that you get certified by the attorney general kind of early mid September. I think it was September 9th that we had our first signatures and we had to deliver the last ones by November 22nd. We actually got those most of them in earlier than that. So it's it's not, a system not made to be easy. So we have 117,000 members, public school and college educators across the Commonwealth. And if I had to say anything, I mean, there's been growing activism. We did the fair share amendment. We defeated question two a few years ago. We have won a statewide effort to win more funding for schools and something called the Student Opportunity Act. I think one of the fundamental things is, and it's no secret, that there's a tight bond, um, really very principled and emotional bond as well between the public, especially parents and their educators. They trust their their children with our members and they when our members speak up and say, look, this is this is what we need for our schools, whether it's a better contract or the fair share amendment, or we need to lessen the the you know, the high stakes part of MCAS they hear and they become part of that campaign.
0: So, Max Page, in terms of lessons learned, I'd like you to spend a moment with us telling us what lessons, if any, have been learned by what happened with the legislature and this fiasco of taking weeks and weeks and months and months to pass a supplemental budget to fund contracts that were negotiated long, long ago. I think yeah. the legislature looked kind of ridiculous, and I think the legislators think that they look, well, in in ineffective to be generous, what what's the lesson here?
1: Yeah, uh, but I think that's the right word fiasco. I mean, this is there's a standard process by which sort of to close out the budget for the calendar year. They have sub, what's called a supplemental budget The legislature does this every single year. It should be non controversial.
0: And we should note the legislature finally passed the budget this week.
1: Yes. On, on Monday, they finally passed the supplemental budget. Um, weeks, though, after the formal session, as it's called the legislature ended, which means it's much more complicated to pass things once it's passed a formal session, because one member can essentially say, I don't think there's a quorum here. We can't, uh, we can't pass anything. It's supposed to be a time of very, um. Non-controversial issues. But there were some important issues in this, mainly about funding for a shelter for migrants. But our ninety-five state worker contracts that represent sixty thousand state workers who had resolved their contracts six months or more ago uh, were being being held up um, because of still unclear disputes between the House and Senate. And it is a huge problem and It's hard for for listeners to hear, but if you can imagine that kind of like hands in the air, like, I don't know, I don't know what to do, that kind of look, that's what we were hearing from legislators, all of them, because this became a dispute at the only at the very top between the leadership of the House and the Senate. And there's something wrong with our system where we have non-controversial items, state workers waiting for six months to receive their duly ratified negotiated pay increases. And they can't get it done for weeks and weeks and weeks. I, w- I want to point not- out
2: that one of those th- one of those matters that was being funded was also disaster relief for communities that were hit by storms. Absolutely, in that's right. That, you know, aside from the emergency shelter issues, there was special education issues. There were things that, as you say, everybody agreed were worthwhile causes to be funded by our government, and yet they couldn't uh, they couldn't get this thing passed.
1: And I'd like to point out and just to, you know, for listeners to look up uh, an article called Massachusetts Blues in the American Prospect, um, in which uh, Robert Kuttner there writes a long article about what's what's wrong here in Massachusetts. We have supermajority Democratic legislature, we have a Democratic governor, it's generally a very progressive state, and yet we seem not to be able to get some huge things done. Um, And there seems to be a lot of uh, tension within the legislature, which slows things down. And so it's it's a worthwhile read because it talks about some of the centralization of power, the lack of transparency that makes us one of the least transparent legislatures in the country. There's some real issues that stand that that are behind this immediate fiasco, as you called it, Bill.
0: And I'd like to point out, although there may be some raises in these contracts for educators, most of them as i understand it really are not raises nearly as much as their cost of living adjustments for people waiting to keep for their for their remuneration for their pay to keep up with inflation
1: and not even keep up i mean this was a one-year contract i should note a one-year contract and it was a good one-year contract but it only begins to make up what was lost to inflation during the baker years in other words state workers have seen a decline even as private sector workers have seen um, wages grow. And we are seeing this in virtually every department across state government, from the MBTA to public higher education, to Department of Children and Families, where they simply cannot recruit or retain staff. And this is bad for government, it's bad for people, it's bad, frankly, for the legislature and the governor when state government can't work as well as it should.
2: But I wanna point out the governor to her credit, Uh, even though she wanted to lower taxes on short-term capital gains and has other what we progressive think were controversial uh, provisions. It took her about a second and a half to sign this supplemental budget. She wanted this to go forward.
1: Absolutely. Look, there's a lot of things like the tax cuts, which we remain deeply upset about. But in terms of the contracts, the governor put forward a fair contract, even though it was one year. We wanted a three-year contract. I think most state workers wanted that. But And then she She as soon as they came in, she filed them with the legislature. Most of these were submitted to the legislature by the governor last spring, the moment they were um, signed and sealed. And yes, um, she, the moment they were signed literally like within an hour in her office at 5 PM on Monday, she signed the budget into law. So we absolutely do give credit for being very efficient and um, supportive on these contracts.
0: It's a kumbaya moment. We should really, really leave it there. It doesn't happen all the time. Max Page is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. This has been Your State U with Max Page. We'll be right back with Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe, right after this.
3: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg find local news and local talk for the Valley.
4: It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors.
3: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP News, Information and the Arts. This week's Shop Tuesday is Simple Gifts Farm Store. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Simple Gifts Farm releases
5: gift certificates for their farm store in North Amherst. Get organic produce, pasture-raised meat, free-range eggs, local dairy and more at Simple Gifts Farm Store. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Simple Gifts Farm Store in North Amherst. Available this Shop Tuesday
6: at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at WHMP.com.
7: Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work in active, organic garden. Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day.
3: Sunday mornings on WHMP means Polka. Celebrate the Valley's proud Polish heritage with Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning Polka Carousel to the airwaves of the Valley playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits there are polka hits brought to you by saluzniak funeral home northampton's
5: funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial
3: care it's polka carousel whmp hey
8: mr spaceman won't you please take me along i won't do it.
0: We are so pleased to be speaking with Professor and Astronomer Salman Hamid, Hampshire College Professor and Astronomer Salman Hamid, because there is indeed breaking news, not exactly from outer space, but sort of from the middle of the Earth. And, well, it's not exactly news, but it's news to us. I don't know. It's a couple of billion years old, perhaps, but we're just learning about it. Salman Hamid, this is a story about how the moon formed. And it's really exciting. I wanna know how our moon formed. So do a lot of people. And I'd like to know whether how our moon formed is representative or commonplace with regards to how other moons form. But first, let's start with what did we just learn? Uh,
9: Thank you, Bill. And uh, as it turns out, uh, the moon, which we see it all the time, most of the times, uh, its formation has been a bit of a puzzle. And uh, there were different theories around it. uh, But now, the theory that most astronomers uh, think might have happened was that four and a half billion years ago, soon after the formation of the solar system, uh, when there was a lot of stuff floating around, Earth was there as a protoplanet. It was still in the process of formation when a large Mars sized body. Astronomers actually have given it a name, Theia. It came in and collided with the earth at a glancing angle. And because of that collision, a lot of debris went into space and within, and to me, that is the like mind boggling thing. We think that within a few hours, that debris coalesced around the Earth and formed our Moon.
0: Wait a second. The whole Moon only took a few hours to form. I mean, it's 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 small, but it's big.
9: Yes, yes. And so that's a, so that's what computer simulations uh, say. Sort of like you know that it took previously even even the more conservative estimates would say a few years. That's still a very short time if you think about. Sort of like in terms of the formation of the moon but this is where a sort of like you know a lot of stuff is happening earth is also a bit molten in there but this material coalesces pretty quickly You, you can think of sort of like you know that it sweeps up the material and uh turns into our moon and it's very close to us it's not far away as it is right now when it was formed it was much closer to us and then over the period of time because of the conservation of angular momentum it has been going out and out and out slowly
2: so professor Salman hamid so this is called the big whack and my question is this are we still could there be another tira that's going to hit the earth or is this just because it was a formation of our galaxy that this i mean our solar system that this happened
9: yeah so that's that's a great question i can know that hey if that big of a body came in and formed the moon can we be hit by a similar sized body now Uh, and then we can think about i mean of course we won't be around if such a body hit us i can know but there may be another moon actually the likelihood is pretty much zero and the reason is because you don't have those free floating big bodies that were there in the early solar system today So the likelihood that some large sized body would just come in and hit us, it's pretty small. Now, you can be hit by asteroids and comets, but those are much smaller in size. They are not like Mars sized bodies that are just uh, floating around in the solar system. The solar system has stabilized quite a bit uh, and we don't know of these kind of bodies that will be coming in.
0: So Professor, Tell us why we are talking about this today. Some geologists, I think it is, have actually come up with this and as I understand it, they have formulated the premise or and I think arrived at the conclusion that a lot of this I don't know if it's debris, but a lot of this object that's smashed into the earth is actually now within the earth. But tell, right. tell us tell us why this is now. Front and center on the uh, front pages of the annals of scientific inquiry.
9: So the question was, well, that's a great story. Tea, like you know, came in, hit us, and formed the moon. And uh, and I should mention, sort of like you know, there are a lot of reasons why, uh, especially after Apollo, uh, the samples that the Apollo astronauts brought back that really solidified that idea. But the question was, wait a minute, but what happened to that body? Thea, where is its material? And now we think that uh, Thea is in fact, a lot of it is inside the earth. And that's a fascinating story. Why do geologists in particular think that, astronomers and geologists? And uh, there were two big blobs that were discovered about 50 years ago. Uh, One is named Tuzo, that's named after a Canadian geophysicist Tuzo Wilson and another one is named Jason Uh, this is named after a plate tectonics pioneer Jason Morgan these two large continent sized bodies one is under West Africa and one is under the Pacific Ocean near sort of like you know about 1800 miles below the surface these two features seem to be sort of like, you know, uh, out of our core uh, into the mantle, seem to be sticking out. And so people thought, geologists thought, well, these were part of the earth. It, they are leftover deformities from the early formation of the earth. But now, uh, new simulations uh, suggest that actually these two large bodies, may have been the material from Theia. And uh, the reason why they think that is because it's a bit denser than the mantle. And this is what was expected of what Theia was made up of. How do we know that? Because the material that the moon's crust is made up of is also a bit denser. So now simulation suggests that actually that this, these two large continent-sized bodies, Tuzo and Jason, are actually part of the tale.
0: I know Buzz is anxious to ask you a question, but I have one more on this topic. Uh, is ha- the way in which the moon for the Earth was formed typical of, that, of how moons are formed around planets, or is this an anomaly?
9: Aha, well, uh... So there are moons of Mars. There are moons of Jupiter and Saturn and other planets. And it looks like all of these mechanisms are different. So Jupiter's moons, we think, and Saturn's moons, we think they form just like solar system planets have been formed. You have a large body and then material coalesces uh, from the disk around it. So we think Jupiter and Saturn moons are similar to the way the solar system in general was formed. There, has, there is a lot of debate about moons of Mars, which are much smaller in size. And generally, people think that they were captured uh, from the asteroid belt or they came close to it and they were captured, although there is a little bit of a debate right now about that because of new results. Now, Earth's moon is actually unusual because it's much bigger compared to the size of, of the planet. Mercury doesn't have a moon, Venus doesn't have a moon, Mars has tiny moons, and Earth has a relatively big moon. So we think that it actually is a relatively uh, unusual thing to have uh, such a large moon. And if you trace it back, it is relatively unlikely or, or unusual to have a large collision to have created that moon
0: making us unique, making us number one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs>
9: <laughs> but, and, and, and I should mention, I know I am going to get to a buzz, but I should mention that the this collision and then the moon are also responsible probably for the tilt of the earth and for keeping the tilt stable. Wow. So in some sense, the reason why we have seasons and the reason why we have this 23 and a half degree tilt, uh, that is because we think that is because of the collision. And then because of the moon, large moon around it, it keeps our tilt relatively stable. So, yes, we are special. Well, <laughs>
2: that actually leads to the question I, I wanted to ask, because I know that the first four planets in our solar system have molten cores that uh, but the the other four planets have gaseous cores, so I'm wondering if there's an ex- if something hits a planet like this, is the consequence going to be different if you have that density that uh, from a molten core as opposed to a gaseous core?
9: Well, I mean, I mean, we think that uh, the core, uh, even for Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, the, right at the core in the middle, uh, you you actually would have a solid uh, Earth-sized body, like you know, but surrounded that it's all gaseous. And a body like this would not even make a large impact on Jupiter, simply for example because of its size. So if it hits there, it's just going to get like you know destroyed by the time it gets in because of pressures and things like that. Uh, and so it's like a mosquito coming in type of uh, like that said thing. Uh, just to give you a, a, a size comparison, the Great Red Spot on Jupiter, which shows up as a splotch on Jupiter that you can fit two and a half Earths inside that red spot. So these bodies actually do not impact uh, large planets as much, but smaller bodies, they certainly do. Uh, And uh, Venus, for example, rotates the opposite way compared to Earth, uh, compared to all other planets. And one of the reasons why we think it goes the opposite way may have been because of a large collision. It didn't form a moon, but probably because of a uh, large collision. But Buzz, you brought in an interesting question about the core. Earth does have a liquid outer core, but the there is this, at the right of the center, we have a solid inner core. And, uh, and that is crucial because that actually leads to the magnetic fields around the Earth. And there is another news item, and this is where it gets connected on Mars. Uh, and in fact, now there are studies that are coming up. There was a, uh, a, a, a lander over there uh, on Mars, Insight, uh, and it recently stopped working. It was looking for earthquakes. We know about the interiors of the planets, including Earth, and now on Mars also, because of earthquakes and the way those shock waves travel through the interior. And what it found is that. Mars lacks a solid core. Now it looks like Mars only has a liquid core and probably the reason why it doesn't have a a magnetic field surrounding it. Bill, you
2: have to finish finish the show yourself, Bill, because my brain just exploded.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to tease Professor Saman Hamid's next visit with us because what this leads me to think about are the incredible odds about all these things happen, that happening that created the Earth as we know it, that created the evolution that now ex- that has existed for, I don't know, hundreds of billions of years. Um, uh, not hundreds of billions, but hundreds of millions of years in the evolution of species on this planet. What are the odds? It makes me kind of think maybe this idea that intelligent Beings with technology, that's really, really unlikely given all the things that have to happen. So, we're going to get back to the question are we alone? Next time we speak with Professor and Astronomer Salman Hamid. This has been Salman Hamid's Universe. Thank you so much, Salman. We really appreciate your time and insights. Thank you very
9: much. And the answer is no, we're not alone. But yes, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> we'll
0: be right back.
3: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
10: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Hampshire Regional is the newest school in need of a superintendent. Diana Bonville announced she would leave that role at the end of the school year, citing half truths, rumors, and gossip surrounding her job. Bonville sent an email to school committee members, employees, and families yesterday saying navigating five districts is challenging, but it does not give anyone the right to be uncivil, disrespectful, or malicious. This comes after a November 17th school committee meeting where they voted not to renew Bonville's contract due to poor oversight and lack of leadership. The Gazette reports another point of controversy cited by the union was her nomination of Erica Faginski-Stark for assistant superintendent, despite a lack of community support due to a 2021 Facebook post Faginski-Stark made regarding transgender athletes. A 76-year-old Princeton man has passed away after his vehicle crashed into a tree on Tully Road in Orange yesterday morning. Around 10.30 a.m., crews responded to the intersection of Tully Road and Fryville Road. The Orange Ambulance transported the man to Athol Hospital, where he was pronounced dead. The crash is still under investigation. The Hadley Planning Board is pursuing a grant to explore establishing a zoning district to promote housing development. The board voted 4-0 to look into the grant, which would pay for a consultant to explore options. Currently, most zoning districts in Hadley prevent more than one dwelling on a property. The zoning change would potentially allow multiple units of housing on a parcel by right. If awarded a grant, the town would be able to do a study of Route 9 and how certain already developed commercial sites might be reused
3: mixture of sun and clouds today a high of 40 to 44 with a light breeze variable clouds tonight evening temperatures in the 30s an overnight low of 24 to 30 mostly cloudy saturday 46 to 50 rain sunday afternoon with a high in the mid to upper 50s i'm 22 news storm team meteorologist brian lapis 1015 whmp
5: You've been miserable with joint pain for so long. You want and deserve relief, but you just keep putting off that call to QC Kinetics. Okay, now's the time. Listen up. QC Kinetics is rolling out something huge for the first time ever. It's a voucher for $500 off your first joint pain treatment. That's right, $500 off. Whether it's your knees, hips, shoulder, or back, the QC Kinetics voucher applies to any area. But this is a limited time offer, so no more putting off that call. QC Kinetics is the largest regenerative clinic in the country. With with tens of thousands of satisfied patients who are able to get lasting relief with no surgery, no drugs, and no downtime. So reach out to the team at QC Kinetics today and ask them, how can I get a $500 off voucher? They'll walk you through the steps and get you started on your way to relief. Don't wait. This is a limited time offer. Call for your free consultation today. QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Limited time only. Not valid with any other other offer Happy are the holidays at Winesick Nursery, but behind the fresh-cut Christmas trees, the wreaths, the roping, and the wooden reindeer, beyond the retail store filled with gifts, just past the poinsettias, indoor plants, pottery, or planters, and bird feeders. On the other side of the ornaments, garden gifts, and gifts cards, that's where you'll find the Winesick family wishing you and your family a healthy and happy holiday season. Thank you for growing with us on Route 9 in Hadley and at winesicknursery.com.
0: Happy holidays from the Winesick family to yours. Maybe you still have your copy of a favorite long-ago book like I do about Mickey Mantle signed by my Uncle Bill, Hanukkah, 1958. A book can make a lasting impression. Something Someday is the new picture book by the presidential inaugural poet Amanda Gorman. Get it at Broadside Bookshop. For middle grade and elementary readers, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Chalice of the Gods. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered anywhere or pick it up at the store, then browse a bit. Broadside, Northampton's independent bookshop. The
11: beat goes on. The beat goes on.
6: a
0: rhythm to the welcome to art beat with our segment host Donabel cassis who has with her and us today a very special guest we'll have that introduction in just a moment well actually let's do it now because let's talk first about arts night out which we don't pay quite as much attention to as we might because somehow we just accepted of course we have arts night out in northampton of course we have arts night out in east hampton but really there are communities in this commonwealth where Arts Night Out is not a regular feature of life, is not part of the fabric of the community. So Donna Cassis, I give this to you. (laughs)
4: Thanks, Bill. Yes, I know. I think we take it all for granted that we live in such an amazingly cultural area and we have these types of events. And of course, yesterday is the second Friday of the month, which means it's Arts Night Out, Northampton. So many things going on. And one thing I definitely want to highlight is there's a MicroWorks opening this evening at APE Gallery, which of course is an amazing event where they showcase artists from all the exhibits that they've ever had at ape gallery and they're allowed to show work and some of the portions of that work uh, the sales of those works will go towards um, the funding the curators and um, exhibits and programs at ape so definitely stop by there but really tonight i would love to highlight something so exciting and amazing that's also happening in northampton which you could check out as well during your stroll across Arts Night Out, and it is a brand new, spanking new gallery space that is opening at 33 Holly Street through the Northampton Center for the Arts, and today we are joined by Kelly Silliman, who's the program director. Kelly, so happy to have you on the show today. Good morning.
12: Good morning. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's
4: all very exciting oh my gosh i mean what can we not talk about but this space i saw i saw pictures and i know tonight is the open house for this brand new opportunity really for area artists to exhibit and to show work but um tell us about it because it's just gorgeous sure thank you um
12: so one of the things that's so special about Thirty Kali and the organizations that program out of there is that it's a multi-art space. So most of the spaces are used for all kinds of arts activities, from performances to classes to exhibits, Um, but this space, the gallery, is is special because it's a dedicated gallery space, Um, and it's a dedicated gallery space that was built in a community arts building for the community. Um, So I feel really lucky to be a part of the organization that's helping to steward that gallery and we have been working behind the scenes um, for about a year now to really prepare to to open and tonight is the big night. Um, We're going to be there between 5.30 and 7 p.m. and people can come and go as they want. There'll be some speakers at 6 o'clock and it's just a great opportunity to see the space, to meet people who've been
4: involved. Um, So, Kelly, describe to us, because we're on radio, describe to us this space because you've got to see it in person. It's it's just gorgeous. I mean, how big is it? How many walls do you have? Where is it in the building? Please
12: tell us. Yeah. So, for folks who have been to 33 Polly before, when you enter through the front doors, you are in a big beautiful lobby area that um, is open to the other levels of the building and for folks who haven't been back this month since our very recent reopening um we is now finished a beautiful wood floor um extraordinary lighting features and to the left Um, is the gallery. And the gallery has uh, this incredible statement piece, this beautiful barn door that opens so that when the gallery is open, you walk in and there's a big, you know, it's welcoming, it's open. Um, And the gallery itself uh, has the same wood floors from the lobby. Um, It's really high ceiling, so it feels very open and spacious. It's just over 500 square feet with um, I would say three and a half walls uh, <laughs> because of the bar. I mean, that's door, a lot of lose. space, yeah. It's a lot of space, yeah, yeah. So we are, of course, we're going to be learning about it um, and, and what's possible in there over the next few months, but it's feeling really um, like full of possibility.
0: So Kelly, Seliman, let me ask you this. You've described this as a dedicated uh, space, a dedicated gallery space which I take it means that uh, for, well, at least the very foreseeable and perhaps not foreseeable future, this space is going to be used for different exhibits. How is that going to work? Who's going to, who's going to choose what's on the walls? How long will they be up for? I mean, this is an enormous community resource that is now being presented. It's been, well, envisioned for years, but here it is. How's it, how's yeah. it going to work?
12: Um, Thanks for asking, Bill. So, um, there will be a call for artists on a yearly basis. Um, We just had a call for what I like to call sort of a short year, which will run January through August, but um, in future years the call will go out in May. Um, People can propose uh, curatorial visions, solo shows, group shows, um, and then a curatorial committee will decide what happens.
4: And, well, that- and, and so I'm, I'm interested, too, when you say art exhibits, does this include um, sculpture? Is it just 2D? Can it be performance? Like what kind of things are you looking for in this space?
12: So the exhibits will be um, rotated on a monthly basis and uh, can potentially include any. We're prepared to support all kinds of visual art to include 3D. Um, The performance would be, I think, more of like a programmatic uh, venture that would happen in relationship to an exhibit. Um, It's certainly possible, but we're really focusing on the visual art right now.
4: Now, I know you already have a show lined up for January, which will be the first exhibit in the new space. Can you tell us about the artists and what we may look forward to?
12: Sure. So one of the decisions that the steering committee um, and the first curatorial committee decided was that one of the exhibits per year would be uh, curated or show exhibit the art of the curatorial committee. So a way of really connecting the multiple roles that artists play in our community. Um, and also a bit of a, a bit of a thank you for the, the work that they do to make these really hard decisions. Um, so that first group is made up of Ellen Nathaniel Alkiewicz, Natalia Hume, Niaja Velazquez, uh, Carlos Rec McBride, Em Rutter, Robin Griffith, and Javier Lopez. And so it's going to be quite a full show. That's a big uh, show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a big show. We, we were just, we just spent some time in the gallery this past weekend kind of mapping out where everyone's work would be. Um, in this particular uh, exhibit, I think all of the work is 2D. Um, and but it really runs the gamut from abstract acrylics to photography to five art. we you
0: know, need to, we need to, we need to interrupt this conversation for just a minute it is arts night out we're going to come back very very soon and we're going to hear more about what is here for you to see at arts night out at 33 holy street tonight it is a grand opening you want to be part of it and we'll be right back
3: More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, coming up right here on WHMP.
5: I'm Tony Warden, President and Chief Executive Officer of Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I want to wish everyone a happy holiday season and a safe and healthy new year.
11: Hi, this is Stacy from the Residential Loan Department at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, this is Melissa, loan processor at the co-op. Hi, this is Brittany. I'm also a loan processor at GCB. We'd like to wish our friends, family, and customers
12: a very Merry Christmas
11: and a Happy New Year. Hello,
4: this is Erin from South Hadley and Courtney from Northampton. We're wishing you a joyful holiday and a new year full of happiness and good health.
11: Hi, this is Mandy. And this is Rachelle. From From Greenfield Cooperative Bank, wishing you and yours a Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah and all the other holidays you may celebrate this season.
5: Hello, I'm James Alexander, Vice President and Commercial Lender located in Shelburne Falls. I want to wish everyone a happy and safe holiday season from the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, this is Chris Wilkie from the Greenfield Cooperative Bank, wishing you all a safe and happy holiday season.
4: What's Cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman.
0: Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping too.
4: River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone
6: is welcome.
3: With the holidays upon us, the increase in traveling, shopping, and connecting online also heightens the need to protect your identity and finances with LifeLock. Identity thieves see this time of year as an opportunity to drain your accounts, open new loans in your name, and damage your financial future. LifeLock detects and alerts you to threats you might miss on your own. Don't let the busy holiday season catch you off guard. Save up to 25% off your first year with promo code NEWS at LifeLock.com you're listening to talk the talk with bill newman and buzz Eisenberg. whmp
0: welcome back to art beat with donna Cassis and her and our very special guest kelly silliman let me turn the microphone back over to donna Cassis.
4: yes and so if you're joining us today right now i'm speaking with kelly silliman who's the program director at Uh, Northampton Center for the Arts in Northampton and of course tonight is Arts Night Out and then part of that uh, the Northampton Center for the Arts is unveiling their new gallery space at 33 Holly Street. What's really fascinating to to me Kelly is that you have a curatorial team for this gallery but it kind of changes. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
12: Yes we really want to get as many voices into the mix as possible. So we have an open call for folks who want to serve on the curatorial committee. There's a form on our website. And even though the committee only meets once a year, um, that list will be kept ongoing and we'll continue to draw from it and eventually hopefully reach everyone who's interested in serving on that committee.
4: So is this like a year long term or are you on it for life or like how does this work?
12: Yeah, it's um it's it's actually sort of a one-time or possibly two-time thing where um you know curatorial committee members will be chosen, they meet in June or July um to review the submissions for that year, the decision is made and the work is done um except for they they get to have their own exhibit as well where they oh. get to shape whatever they want. Wow, yeah. that's
4: exciting. So what I mean, you know The Northampton Center for the Arts is in 33 Holly Street, and you are the program director. I know there's so many more exciting things happening there. Can you give us a little taste of what else we could look forward to there? Sure. So uh,
12: I always like to give a quick spiel about the building. Um, The building at 33 Holly is owned by the Northampton Community Arts Trust, and they own that building. Um, It was a brilliant vision to own and maintain affordable space for artists in the Valley. And there are three organizations that program there, the Northampton Center for the Arts, APE Gallery, and Northampton Open Media. And gosh, what can we look forward to? I mean, this month, the Northampton Artists and Fair, of course, I have to give a plug um, that's It's our third year. We normally host it on Small Business Saturday, but it's going to be on December 17th this year, Sunday. Um, Ten to four, and we really fill up the entire building. Um, we are, yeah, it's just an incredible, incredible fair.
4: Um, and and, those last and minute then shoppers like me—that's
12: <laughs> <right, laughs> the that's
4: procrastinators right. out there—you have an opportunity to to w- buy some wonderful locally made gifts.
12: Exactly, but then you look like you were ahead of the game because it's so personalized and so specific, you know supporting local arts um yeah and and there's a few, there's some other things happening in the building we're starting our youth performance festival um i know ap has some things going on in the workroom which is the that big new space um on the lower level but we're really thinking of january as, january as our kind of grand opening and um and and then it's just i mean the building's gonna be full every day
0: we should, we should also note that at 33 Holly Street, there is being completed, I believe now, the Black Box Theater, which has been a huge undertaking and is going to be an enormous community resource for theater uh, in the Valley, in the region, and of course in Northampton. There is a dance studio that is used for all manner of dance as well. There is a community space for all sorts of other artistic and cultural activities that go on including film there is the room that is used for multi-purpose room for all sorts of things including lectures and film and what have you i mean this is an amazing enterprise 33 Holly street is really extraordinary kelly you you gave some but there's lots <laughs> and lots going on here it's
4: well true.
12: <laughs> it's true yeah, it's hard to oversell it it's really <laughs> incredible and. Um, I I was this week I've been thinking back to 2017 when the building first opened and there were just two rooms and everything else was under construction and we were just kind of determined to to start working in there and it's it's just it's a been a wild ride.
0: Well, part of the brilliance of this enterprise was for the visionaries who began it and began the fundraising for it to say let's get people in the building let's have them see and then people will be enthusiastic they'll be inspired things will happen money will be raised and we'll have this extraordinary community resource for dance for theater for visual arts i mean it's extraordinary and in fact that vision worked because people came and said we can see this
4: well and it's for the future like it's going to be around for a while. I mean, I don't know how long their vision is, but it's for some for it's it's meant to be sort of a staple standard of the community to as an arts hub and you know a resource, really.
0: And Kelly Sullivan, maybe you should tell us one more time. No, not maybe. Please tell us one more time. Tonight, what's happening?
12: <laughs> yeah, so tonight we are having an open house for the new dedicated art gallery, which is one of the spaces that was recently renovated at 33 Holly as part of this sort of final almost final phase um it's from 5 30 to 7 p.m people can come and go throughout the evening but we will have some speakers at 6 p.m uh it's a chance to see the gallery to see the other spaces to learn about the process for applying for an exhibit or to be on the curatorial committee to meet some of the artists who will be exhibiting this year to meet board members and staff members um and really just connect with other folks who are invested in this resource
4: well i think Oh, well, I I definitely say stop there, mingle, take a look, um, and also walk around downtown Northampton because it is arts night out, um, by the way. So anyway, thank you, Kelly Selman, so much for joining us today and giving us a preview of what we can look forward to. Um, It's going to be a wonderful night.
0: And Donabel Casas, thank you so very much too, Kelly Selman. Always a pleasure to have you back on the show. This has been Artbeat on Talk the Talk.
10: Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400.
5: WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits.
11: There's nothing like being in the same room at the same time, sharing your experiences with other women. At Cancer Connections Breast Cancer Support Group, we can laugh or cry. With our burdens lifted, even for a little while, we can go back to our lives better able to handle dealing with cancer and all it entails. Go to cancer connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge.
3: WHMP Northampton and WRSI. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg.
0: And I'm Bill Newman.
2: And we are always so lucky to have Claire Higgins, uh, the Executive Director of the Community Action of Pioneer Valley, uh, here come in with us. There is just so much to talk about, but, um, you know, there is always a discussion about whether uh, these I'm gonna, NGOs, or these things, public service entities, are uh, when they're inadequately funded by public Dollars, What should we do about uh, supplementing their budget so they can perform the missions which they are in, created to perform? And often it falls on private individuals um, and their donative intent to be able to make things happen, these noble causes, including community action. So, Claire Higgins, I wanted to ask you about this, about, um, well, we just had Giving Tuesday. Right. Let's talk a little bit about Why people should give and what benefits they might enjoy if they give.
13: Yeah, thanks for asking me and thanks for having me. Good morning. Um, You know, I've been thinking a lot about the whole issue of philanthropy and charitable giving a lot, and I'm have such I'm challenged sometimes by it because I wish our government could just structure make some adjustments to the way we deal with our economy that would more clearly benefit low, moderate-income people and create more equity. But that's not what we have. So, you know, and we have the um, benefits that uh, come from the government that you need a a significant amount of proof to say that you're eligible for them. And then there's, um, you know, and then there's this large nonprofit sector that includes everybody from very wealthy colleges that are tax-exempt, many hospital systems that are... Tax exempt in some different ways to uh, the of Soup Kitchen, or or uh, you know the Survival Center in Northampton, or Amherst. So it really runs the gamut, right? And um, and the way those those charitable donations get treated that people make it run the gamut from from large to small. The small nonprofits or the or the nonprofits, and we're not so small, um, that deal with Directly with uh, basic human needs, often need donations to meet that need. Um, we, uh, for instance, our food pantry. We raise money to give out food on at, at, at our um, at our center for self-reliance on Main Street in Greenfield, and our in our pantry in out in Shelburne. So we we need to raise money to be able to provide that food and to provide. The salary for th- those folks, because there's no single stream that will fund that, right? The operation of pantries. Um, at, uh, 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 Heidi at at uh, North Am- at the Northampton Survival Center, or Lev Ben Ezra at the Amherst Survival Center have to do a significant amount of fundraising to keep their doors open to provide food, right? And which is, you know, absolutely true and shocking in the United States of America, right? Uh,
2: it always, uh, it, it used to frustrate me when my mailbox was filled, you know, right. 90% of what I get in the mail is solicitations for something or other, and and then I step back and I think about what the something or other really means to people, and it, it, you know, it makes you aware of, we all have an obligation to each other, I think, right. and and giving you something that uh, you get more out of than than it costs.
13: I appreciate that, and I, 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 I that's, I mean, for me, I get those same solicitations, and I put checks in those envelopes because those organizations are really important to me. And they're, they're important to me, but they're important to the health of our society. Many of the people that are going to those food pantries or going to the other services that we're supporting are working, or they're retired and don't make enough in their social security check to cover all their costs, right? So these are, these are not um, luxuries that people are donating to, right? And uh, so, you know, and then we raise money also for things like our heat-up fund, which helps us keep people warm in their house when one or another of the government programs, which are, you know, bureaucratic and we have to do a lot of income checking and all that other stuff, sometimes somebody just needs some help and we have – we we. The gateway is through our fuel assistance program, and then we see if there's something we can't do there, we try to help them with our heat-up fund, and that's a really important part about what we do. And we get, you know, our, our uh, we hired Jess Thompson from the Chamber of Commerce here in Northampton. We stole her away to help us think about how to raise money and to raise uh, community engagement in this kind of thing in a way that we hadn't been doing before. And she says, you know, this allows us to say yes more often. We can say yes if we have the money that you don't have to provi- provide every single job, uh, uh, you know, every s- tiny piece of paper that proves something to someone. You know, for, for um, people living with low incomes, there's a significant time tax that they pay in order to get access to the services that they need.
2: A significant time tax. Well, speaking of tax, uh, Bill, the... The standard deduction is, I I know, but I think the income tax came into effect in 1914, something like that. And when it did, um, the uh, legislation provided for charitable deductions in order. That's why so many of our local libraries were built by tycoons at the time, et cetera. But um, it's changed a little bit. There's now a standard deduction bill. Could you explain that for us, uh, what tax advantages people might have in uh, furthering their uh, donative desires?
0: Well, the standard deduction has existed for many, many years. What changed in relatively recent years is that the standard deduction was increased to a very significant amount. So now about 95 percent, I believe, of taxpayers take the standard deduction, which means that they don't itemize, which means that the charitable deduction is not as valuable uh as it used to be in terms of a tax deduction for a lot of people although significantly i don't think that has affected the charitable giving of most of the uh low-income middle-income individuals who give because they give because to give really is to receive that said there is another and i'm not claiming to be a tax law expert but there is i know a way in which people can uh particular people of retirement age who may not need all their income and may want to do something uh, that advantages uh, causes and uh, philanthropic endeavors they care about that they can support in a larger way and that is by let me back up one second the individual retirement accounts which some people are lucky enough to have Uh, have something called a required minimum distribution. And this kicks in. I think theoretically it's supposed to happen when you're 70. I think it really uh, takes effect. 72. You have to take a not insignificant percentage of what's in that account out every year. It has to be distributed, at which point that that individual retirement account which was accumulating tax-free for many years and is a nest egg for a lot of people that individual retirement account there has to be a required minimum distribution every year and congress passed a law that said wait a second if you give your required minimum distribution directly to a charity instead of taking the money then that money will not count as income So follow the bouncing ball. This is actually interesting how the government did something helpful for individual philanthropies. Let's say you're going to get $100 from the individual retirement account. You take it as income and you'll pay income tax on it. But if you take that $100, for example, and direct it directly to the charity, the 501c3 organization, then it doesn't count as income. So instead of taking your $100, taking it as income paying the tax and giving what's left over to the charity you take the hundred dollars that goes directly to the charity and you don't declare it as income on your income tax it's for some people this actually can increase meaningfully the amount they're able to give to charities how you accomplish this uh people who have an ira an individual retirement account can talk to the persons who uh, are the custodians for the account and they know how to make this happen
13: now, now, that's something I didn't know about, and so I'm going to now. Well, whenever I retire, I will have to start thinking about that because I do have a, a small IRA, uh, you know. And I, I think that those kinds of things also are are kind of interesting because the ways to be helpful in terms of donations are not simple and transparent. You kind of had to know that, right?
0: So let me tell you, Let me tell you another one. Um, and this does not apply, unfortunately, for many people, but you know. Uh, some 40% of individuals in the United States, or maybe 50, it's, it varies over, over time, actually own some equities, some stocks. Uh, usually they're in the form of a mutual fund. But let's say, can we have time for one more example here, Buzz? Please do. Okay, so let's say that you bought a stock for uh, $10, your mutual fund for $10, and now it's worth. a share. So you have $40 of capital gains. Um, If you itemize, um, if you give the stock away, you are able to claim as a charitable deduction the entire value of the stock on the day that you contribute it. So you're not giving out $10 a share. If it's the shares of the mutual fund are worth $50, you're giving $50 a share to the charity, and that's the amount that is deductible. And that is An enormous advantage to that taxpayer, because that taxpayer, instead of selling the stock, paying the capital gains tax, and then giving what's left over to the charity, can give the entire value of the stock to the charity, to the philanthropy, and uh, have that total amount as the tax deduction. It's another way in which the tax code actually tries to encourage uh, philanthropic giving for those in this instance who are itemizing,
13: so you know it's interesting to think about all that stuff and where who would who it affects at what income level. And so, listeners to the show who have those kinds of assets, this this is an enormous benefit to them to think about how to to donate money. What's interesting to me too is that our average donation is about fifty dollars
10: mm.
13: because we're not our, our average many of our donors at one point in their life, w- we're using the services of Community Action and they give back. And we get that in the notes that we receive from them, et cetera. So the range of the way people think about uh, donating depends on what their income is and also what what their relationship is with the organization. And for for us, so many people, their relationship with us is that they receive services from Community Action.
2: So I'm so glad you, you mentioned that, uh, Director Claire Higgins, because Um, A lot of people think uh, community action has uh, governmental sponsorship. You get grants, you get your funds from state and federal um, uh, sources. But a lot of people distinguish between those uh, entities which their missions are totally laudable, but they just exclusively rely on donations versus uh, those that get money from governmental uh, funds And uh, then they ask for more uh, contributions by people, private citizens. And a lot of people are turned off, I think, by giving money to an entity which is supported by taxpayer funds. I uh, think it's really important for you to explain how your mission is uh, easier to achieve if people would just uh, understand the importance of giving.
13: I'm going again, come back to that issue of having to document that every single person f- fulfilled every criteria of whatever the funding source is. And we might have somebody who shows up who doesn't meet every single thing, but they need the service. We don't want to say no to them. We want to say yes to them. And honestly, people don't come to a food pantry to scam, right? Like there's much more profitable ways to... to to, to be a scammer right to put yourself through the indignity on some level of, of applying for for help is very difficult for a lot of people we have seniors who've worked all their life who 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 need some help have always been uh, you know self-sufficient and to ask for help is really difficult and and so we want to and if they if for some reason just miss the mark we want to try to help anyway Right. We want to be able to say yes.
2: We want to be able to say yes. That's yeah. a great place to take a short break. We are talking to Executive Director Claire Higgins of Community Action at Pioneer Valley. And we're going to come back. This is an important conversation, and all of us should understand the importance of our dollars to organizations, in particular, Community Action, but organizations like Community
1: Action.
10: Thank
5: you. Let me tell you how it will be.
13: One for you,
3: 19 for me. Because I'm the tax man. Yeah! You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka. Celebrate the valley's proud Polish heritage with Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits there are polka hits
5: brought to you by saluzniak funeral home northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled
3: thoughtful memorial care it's polka carousel whmp
5: You've been miserable with joint pain for so long. You want and deserve relief, but you just keep putting off that call to QC Kinetics. Okay, now's the time. Listen up. QC Kinetics is rolling out something huge for the first time ever. It's a voucher for $500 off your first joint pain treatment. That's right, $500 off. Whether it's your knees, hips, shoulder, or back, the QC Kinetics voucher applies to any area. But this is a limited time offer, so no more putting off that call. QC Kinetics is the largest regenerative clinic in the country. Tens of thousands of satisfied patients who are able to get lasting relief with no surgery, no drugs, and no downtime. So reach out to the team at QC Kinetics today and ask them, How can I get a $500 off voucher? They'll walk you through the steps and get you started on your way to relief. Don't wait. This is a limited time offer. Call for your free consultation today. QC Kinetics, 413 992 5450. That's 413 992 5450. 413 992 5450. Limited time only. Not valid with any other their offer. You're a non-profit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost.
10: Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400.
5: WHMP news, information, and the arts and messages from community non
3: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
0: Welcome back to Talk the Talk. We are talking with the Executive Director of Community Action for the Pioneer Valley, uh, Claire Higgins, and we have been discussing taxes, and I made a few statements uh, about taxes uh, in the first segment, and I'd just like to make cl- this clear. I'm, I'm, I'm not a tax attorney, and if the world depended on my filling out a tax return, we would all be doomed. Nonetheless, generally what I was saying, I'm quite sure is correct. Talk to whoever you talk to about taxes and see if you can take advantages of any of this way, that you can, you can in fact, support organizations that you care about in a way that is bigger than if you, for example, took that required minimum distribution from a retirement account. You can do better for you and you can do better for the organization. I'd like now to ask Claire Higgins about some changes in the tax code in Massachusetts, which is sort of a topic where your eyes glaze over, but wait a second, it's really interesting, it's really helpful, and the legislature and the governor really did, for the most part, the right thing, Claire Higgins. Help us understand.
13: Thanks, Bill. Yeah, I um, I have spent uh, uh, over my years thinking about taxes in lots of different ways. Involved in two pushes to get a at least two pushes to get a graduated income tax in the state uh, early and strong supporter of the Fair Share Tax Amendment, which finally passed. Um, and then in, in you know in city government had to think about taxes. Uh, real estate taxes, which are one of the least progressive taxes that we have, so I was really happy to see that the state doubled the credit in the senior circuit breaker from from twelve hundred dollars a year to twenty-four hundred dollars a year. This is a real victory for people for seniors. Um, uh, it, it could affect over a hundred thousand households. And, um,
2: can you explain that to people whose eyes just glazed over?
13: It, it It's a credit that seniors can use against, you know, they've paid their... their I'm not going to... This, again, I'm not a tax attorney, but while they're doing their taxes, they should be looking at the Massachusetts circuit breaker around... I think it's around their property tax. So um, the maximum possible credit um, goes to $2,400 a year from 1200 so they doubled that. So that's a huge help to people who are paying that property tax and on the rental side they've increased the cap on the rental deduction it doesn't put a lot of money in people's hands but it's another you know uh, it's going to go the benefit goes to the bottom 60% of incomes
0: yeah bill and we should note the difference between a tax deduction and a tax credit don't glaze let your guys glaze over this really matters a tax deduction is something a tax deduction is something that allows you to reduce your income tax if you're if you are itemizing a tax credit reduces the income tax so a tax credit of for example thousand dollars means you pay thousand dollars less in taxes right so and then the,
13: the, so we've always we've had this thing I think dating back to the passage of proposition two and a half that renters didn't that renters can um, have a small rebate on their taxes based on their uh, their rent. And uh, it's not a huge amount of money, but it's going to, um, you know, could add about $50 to somebody's um, tax, um, a, a tax uh, refund is the way I think it plays out. Um, that, and then there's some child independent care tax credits that went up, which I think are really helpful in the credit versus, versus the refund, right? But I, but there, this is all like when you're thinking about this stuff and you're living with a lower income and you do your own taxes and you're trying to figure this all out, I just also want to say that, that Community Action and other places do a free volunteer income tax assistance program called VITA that pe- that we have folks that are trained to help you do your taxes and you don't have to pay somebody to do them. So. Uh, that again, there's uh, that's a, a program that I'd love to have somebody comment on and talk more about when, when, in January. One of our staff, if that's possible, because they know it much better than me. I'm an inch, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep on a lot of this stuff, so they really can explain it. But we have volunteers from across the region who come <laughs> in and help people do their taxes and are able to identify refunds or, or increase refunds in ways. That if people were doing it by themselves alone, they wouldn't be able to do it. And if they were paying somebody to do it, that refund would have been uh, decreased by that amount of the cost of getting your taxes filed. So we also work with people to make sure that they get banked. They have a bank so that that money goes into a bank account and can start accruing interest of some sort.
2: I am am stuck on what you told us uh, a few minutes ago, which is that the average... Um, donation to uh, Community Action is $50. dollars 50 dollars yeah. Yeah, so th- these are people who can barely afford that $50 right. but who care so deeply about your mission that right. they want to support it as we all should.
13: But, I, you know, yes to Community Action, but yes to the survival centers, yes to the Literacy Project and Center for New Americans, yes to all of these programs, way more that help our community Be a better place for people living with low incomes and you know then there's nonprofits that are not rich and are not getting government money but do extraordinary things for people like the music center the community you know community music center or or you know or the theater groups in town that are doing incredible work that don't have a lot of money to survive you know I think about you know, the Iron Horse being sold to an entity that's structured as a nonprofit because that will help them keep that alive, right? Or the Academy of Music, since, uh, you know, bringing, bringing theater and, and important entertainment to the community for over 100 years that's structured as a nonprofit, right? So all of those things make a community. And if we don't, and nobody else is going to do it for us.
2: Mm. And, and Bill, you mentioned a, a minute ago, I mean, it's re- really sanctimonious and I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed even as I say it. But it, as you said, it really is better to give than to receive. There, there's, there's something very meaningful about being part of the solution that changes
0: the community um, for the better. Yeah, I, I also think we should note that what the data show is that people who are of modest means, including many people who are really poor compared to many in this in this society, give a much higher percentage of their income, a much higher percentage than people who are wealthier. People who have been uh, who have been uh, involved with the food bank as recipients turn around and give to the food bank when they have the opportunity to give back. I mean, it is that kind of way in which people give to the community, in which the community is saying to itself, we are here for each other. And I think that's what the crucial piece of philanthropy, particularly at this time of what should be giving, is upon us.
2: Well, I can't say any better than that. uh, I'm ready to break into song, I've Got Plenty and Nothing. (laughs) <laughs> and nothing's plenty for me, no. So, um, Claire, you know, whenever we talk to you, I just am so grateful that uh, that you are doing what you do, and that your colleagues at uh, Community Action are there to make our community just better.
13: I appreciate and Claire, that, and I really, on behalf of of all of my colleagues at Community Action, I work with some f- wonderful, wonderful people. Some of the, I, I'm I'm really privileged to work with them. And they're always thinking about how can we do this better? How can we do this differently? How can we make this easier for the people who need our services? How do we say yes? And so we need the community to be able to say yes.
0: And Claire Higgins, for me, one of the programs of community action that I find most important and, 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 and that really moves me to contribute is your program that provides heating mm-hmm. oil, Because the idea that kids and old people, people of any age for that matter, are sitting in their house cold and or hungry in this community, in this country, and this year, it's just unacceptable. I just am so grateful that you have this program and that you make our community a safer, better place. Maybe we could end by you telling us if we want to contribute to community action and in particular to the. One of the programs at Community Action. How do we do it?
13: Just go to our website, um, Community Action. I think it's communityaction.us, and you'll find us. But I'm going to broaden this because we're not the only nonprofits that need support. We, are, we need support, don't get me wrong. But every single nonprofit in this valley that is working with people directly, if you don't want to give to us, find one of them. You know, uh, I give to no, to my own nonprofit, but you know, there's a bunch of other places, people that I want to support, right? Right down the street is Valley Community Development Corporation, that is is critical to bringing affordable housing to our region. The survival centers, the the shelters, like all of those people, are dependent on the kindness of the community. And whatever is the thing that is closest to your heart, that's the thing that you should contribute to because. It's going gonna, it's gonna to increase your, your joy in, in, in your community because you know you've done your part. And, and I, I'm not usually a syrupy person, but I know that you're going to feel like you're a part of the difference in the community in, in terms of helping. So whatever it is, make, make that small contribution whatever you can, and you're going to feel better about the world.
2: I can't think of a better place to leave it. Claire Higgins, thank you. We'll see you next month.
13: Yes, you will. We'll, yes, be right
2: you will. we'll be right back. We'll be right back.
3: Now I know who exactly I
11: am. I've got this thing in my heart. I must give it today. It only when
3: really. Give it away. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
10: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Hampshire Regional is the newest school in need of a superintendent. Diana Bonville announced she would leave that role at the end of the school year, citing half-truths, rumors, and gossip surrounding her job. Bonville sent an email to school committee members, employees, and families yesterday saying navigating five districts is challenging, but it does not give anyone the right to be uncivil, disrespectful, or malicious. This comes after a November 17th school committee meeting where they voted not to renew Bonville's contract due to poor oversight and lack of leadership. The Gazette reports another point of controversy cited by the union was her nomination of Erica Faginski-Stark for assistant superintendent, despite a lack of community support due to a 2021 Facebook post Faginski-Stark made regarding transgender athletes. A 76-year-old Princeton man has passed away after his vehicle crashed into a tree on Tully Road in Orange yesterday morning. Around 10.30 a.m., crews responded to the intersection of Tully Road and Fryville Road. The Orange ambulance transported the man to Athol Hospital, where he was pronounced dead. The crash is still under investigation. The Hadley Planning Board is pursuing a grant to explore establishing a zoning district to promote housing development. The board voted 4-0 to look into the grant, which would pay for a consultant to explore options. Currently, most zoning districts in Hadley prevent more than one dwelling on a property. The zoning change would potentially allow multiple units of housing on a parcel by right. If awarded a grant, the town would be able to do a study of Route 9 and how certain already developed commercial sites might be reused
3: mixture of sun and clouds today, a high of 40 to 44 with a light breeze. Variable clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 30s, an overnight low of 24 to 30. Mostly cloudy Saturday, 46 to 50. Rain Sunday afternoon with a high in the mid to upper 50s. I'm 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP.
6: Do you think the Amish sleep in horse-drawn beds? Whatever beds they sleep in, the Amish build beds that are simply beautiful with subtle arts and crafts touches. There's an old Amish proverb, the most important things in your home are people. Maybe so, but those people need a place to sleep. Amish made beds from Talon Furniture. So good looking, so well built. Talon has Amish beds ready for delivery, or order in the wood and finish you want. Then we have beds made in Vermont that have all of the craftsmanship of Amish beds, made from cherry or maple, But these Vermont-built beds are just a touch more elegant in their design. How about an upholstered bed, an upholstered headboard and frame? It's a really nice look and feel. Talon Furniture's upholstered beds come in dozens of fabrics and leathers. In between today and tomorrow, there will be time in bed. Spending that time in a nice bed just feels good. Come to Talon Furniture, the little bed boutique just down the hill from Amherst College.
4: What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman.
0: Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping too.
4: River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone
6: is welcome.
3: The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo, Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP.
5: Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West.
3: The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
2: We have been uh, uh, focused on, we should be focused on, uh, the right to shelter. That is, there's so many families in need of emergency shelter in Massachusetts today. We recently uh, passed a supplemental budget, which thankfully the governor in in a second and a half uh, signed in order to provide more resources to shelter these uh, families, pregnant women, um, who um, have been guaranteed, we're told, uh, placement in the state's emergency assistance shelters. Um, We are very, we're going to talk about it with two people who really uh, have been working from the inside on providing those kinds of uh, resources that people need for their survival. And uh, I'm so grateful that they are Uh, Joining us today, they are from Central West, and um, I would like to just turn the mic over. uh, First to you, Marion. So tell us a little bit about what you do and for whom you do it.
8: Yes. Hi. Good morning. Um, My name is Marion Hone, and um, I am a senior supervising attorney at the Central West Justice Center. I supervise our benefits unit, and as part of our benefits unit, we represent homeless families that need to access um, the state's Emergency Assistance Shelter System.
2: Before we go any further, what is Central West <laughs> Justice, and a lot Good of us question. know about Community excellent.
8: Legal Aid? E- yes, excellent question. So um, Central West Justice Center is affiliated with Community Legal Aid. We um, Community Legal Aid is our parent organization, and together we provide um, civil legal aid to low-income residents
11: of Central and Western Mass.
2: And uh, you also, Catherine Addie Bell, you also work for Central West Justice.
11: Yes, I do. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. My name is Catherine bell and I'm an attorney with the Central West Justice Center, and I work in the benefits unit. Um, the bulk of my work is with clients who are experiencing homelessness and trying to access the state's emergency assistance shelter program.
2: So let's talk about emergency assistance shelter program. Um, what is it, um, and how's it functioning?
11: Well, it's um a benefits program, meaning that um it's it's funded by the government. It's an entitlement program. Families who are eligible for it um are, are supposed to be entitled to access shelter and it's a program specifically for families with children. We have a you know, there's a separate set of shelters that support and serve um, individuals, uh, adults, um, who are who are experiencing homelessness, but this program in particular is just for families with children. So it's a critically important service um, for, for these vulnerable families with, with children, as well as pregnant women, infants, um, all of them.
2: Folks from Franklin County are familiar with the fact that Greenfield, I think the days in, in Greenfield shelters a lot of uh, families there. Is that is that part of the sort of uh, work that you do? I think that's ServiceNet, right? It actually runs that?
8: Yes. Um, the Greenfield Shelter is run by, by ServiceNet. And yes, um, the um, Greenfield Family Inn is part of the emergency assistance shelter system. Um, so the state is funding that particular shelter, is contracting with nonprofit organizations such as ServiceNet uh, to provide shelter to eligible families with children.
2: How big a problem is this, Marion
8: um, which problem? <laughs> is. The fact if people need
2: <laughs> need shelter and don't have it. And people um, who, who don't have a place to live as winter comes up.
8: Yeah. So, so I think I, w- I want to also sort of back up because um, one of the things to note is that the emergency assistance shelter program provides shelter to eligible families. So um, already. Um, um, there, there's not every family in the state that, that is homeless will be eligible and able to access family shelter.
2: When you say eligible, you're talking about financial eligibility. Well,
8: that, that is one aspect. So financial eligibility is at um, families have to be very, very low income, 115% of the federal poverty level. and um, But there's also a whole um, host of other criteria that families have to meet. Certain types of evictions may make them ineligible, Um, It's a very difficult process for families to navigate, to even get into um, shelter, so we do a lot of work with that. Um, And so right now what has been happening is that um, families that actually have been found eligible by the state face being placed on a waiting list because the state has decided that, um, to cap the number of shelter spaces available um, at 7,500. I think it's actually a little bit above that right now. I think um, what we saw yesterday is that there were um, 75, uh, 7,525 families in the uh, shelter system and at the same in wh- time... In what
2: region? In um, what across
8: the state. Across, across the, state, the state. And um, 175 families have been placed on a waiting list. And those are families that have been determined by the state to be eligible for shelter. And those are families that don't have another place to stay. Because in order to qualify for the state family shelter system, a family has to show that it does not have another place to stay.
0: Um, Bill? Bill? Yeah, so I have a couple of questions for either one of the attorneys from Central West Justice, part of Community Legal Aid. First, you referenced that Massachusetts is a right to shelter state. What does that mean?
11: Well, yeah, that's that's been said a lot lately in the news that Massachusetts is a right to shelter state. So um, as Marion was saying, because there are so many restrictions on how people can get into shelter, who can get into shelter, you know, I don't, I don't think of it as a right to shelter state. I think it's great that there's a program, but again, there's so many obstacles, so many barriers, so many rules that disqualify certain families from shelter, um, that there are many, many families who are experiencing homelessness who are barred from that sh- state shelter system.
2: So, uh, Catherine eighty bell the uh, my, un- my understanding is that Massachusetts is spending almost $50 million a month um, sheltering people and that the, the governor said there is an emergency. We're in a state of emergency with respect to our ability to provide what Bill just alluded to, I think it was in the 1980s that we called ourselves a right to shelters state. So she asked for another quarter of a billion dollars, I think, um, in order to uh, meet part of that demand. You're on the ground you see it. You meet with the people who need these shelters. Uh, are we satisfying the need, as we should?
11: No. As As Marion said, right now, because of this cap that has been placed, um, there are families that... that are, have nowhere to stay, they're eligible for shelter, but they've been put on a waiting list. So there needs to be something for those families. There needs to be some kind of emergency overflow. There needs to be resources, and they need to be spread across the state. Um, right now, there is there is a lot of talk about you know, creating some, some of those out in the Boston area. I haven't heard of any plans for ones out here in Western or Central Massachusetts, and that's a big concern for us, because when we're working with poor families who are in trauma, who are in crisis, and to be able to tell them that we don't have an overfull place for them out here is just not acceptable. You know, that, there needs to be something. These Again, these are children in the winter in New England that are that are experiencing homelessness.
2: So a lot of these emergency shelters, uh, a lot of people are being housed in hotels and motels um, that, that have space because we just don't have space. Do I get that right?
11: Yeah, but even that has stopped. Even the, the number of 7,500, which I guess is a little bit higher now, but that there there is no plans to expand that to use more motel spaces. It's just the cap has been placed. Um, there there are many families that are living in motels, but there is no plan to continue to grow that as a way to serve these families. Right now, they're just placed on a waiting list.
2: Uh, Marian Hone, what should we be doing?
11: Well, I, I just also wanted to add one thing.
8: Um, which is um, a family that cannot get a referral from the state agency to be placed in family shelter, really has very few options, particularly here in Western Massachusetts. There are not any um, alternatives available. There are no shelters that would accept a family that does not... um, have a referral from the state. It's not been approved by the state to access the state-funded shelter system. There are no nonprofit organizations um, that offer family, um, shelter to families that can't access the state-funded system. There's a separate system um, for victims of domestic violence. So if, if a family involves a domestic violence um, victim, there's a separate shelter system. But families that don't fall into either one of those two categories, either the state funded, eligible for the state-funded system or the domestic violence shelters, they are li- really literally left out in the cold, particularly in our service area. So that's why... Um, We're we're already uh, under normal circumstances sort of facing that crisis of not um, having a place where families can go, but particularly now with the cap, as Catherine has mentioned, we're concerned about overflow sites um, being also in our area. So I think overall what, what should happen, um, I also want to say we're incredibly thankful to the legislature for um, passing the supplemental budget and funding the, the shelter system and asking the admin- the administration to establish overflow sites for those families on, on the waiting list. So we're incredibly thankful for that. And we hope that the legislature will continue to fund the system um, while at the same time sort of addressing some of the underlying um, causes um, the migrant crisis is exacerbating a pre-existing crisis in Massachusetts. Massachusetts has an affordable housing crisis, and um, so oftentimes, sort of, the focus is on the new migrant families <coughs> arriving, and and but this the. The crisis of affordable housing and families losing their housing, being priced out of rental markets, really pre-exists the migrants arriving in Massachusetts. So, I hope that that we can address those issues um, so that we have more affordable housing options for our families.
2: We are speaking with Marian Hone and Catherine A.D. Bell from the Central West Justice Center. Bill, you had a, a question. Oh.
0: I do. I do, and I think what I want to do is pose this question. And then answer it on the other side, which is how much has the migrant, uh, what is described as a crisis, actually influenced the need for housing and the inability to provide housing? We're hearing a lot about that. We hear a lot about Massachusetts as a right to shelter state, but we're not a right to shelter state, really. And I'm, Sure that Massachusetts had a high, had a housing crisis long before there was any discussion about migrants at the border. We'll be right back and we'll take that up right after this.
3: coming up right here on WHMP. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to three, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP.
7: Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work in active, organic garden. Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day.
6: Hi, this is Jane Wolf, Senior Vice President of Residential Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I'd like to wish you and your family a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous new year.
4: Hi, this is Missy Tatro, Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I'd like to wish everyone a safe and happy
11: holiday season.
10: Hi, this is Julie and Ashley, wishing wishing everyone a a cheerful, stress-free holiday season and and a delightful new year.
11: Hi, I'm Brendan
6: O'Connor. I'm Ethan McCandless. And I am Luke Parsons from the Credit Department at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Happy holidays.
11: Hi, this is Teresa from the 63 Federal Street Office of Greenfield Cooperative Bank. I would like to wish all of our customers and their families a Christmas that's merry and bright and a happy new year filled with love, health, and happiness. Hi, I'm Dawn. And I'm Erica from the Florence Branch of Northampton Cooperative Bank. We We would would like like to extend our best wishes to our customers, families, and friends for a happy holiday season and a happy new year. Cheers.
3: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. W H M P,
2: And we are talking we about the emergency uh, shelter crisis, and we are speaking with Marion Hone and Catherine A.D. Bell from the Central West Justice Center. Before we took a break, Bill, you uh, you had a question uh, for these two experts on emergency shelters.
0: I do. One is, where do people sleep while they're on a waiting list waiting for emergency shelter? And the second is, could you clarify for us where the uh Uh, discussion of uh, migrants coming to Massachusetts fits into this issue?
11: Sure. Well, um, so as to the first, you know, where do people sleep? As Marion had mentioned, for folks to be Even approved for shelter, they have to show that they have nowhere else to stay. So, where are folks staying? They're staying in their cars, they're staying in emergency rooms, um, they're staying in other unsafe situations. Sometimes people have to go back to situations where they're not safe, go back to abusers, go back to uh, environments that are that are not good for their kids. so um, they have nowhere good to stay. That's why it's so critical that um, if we're gonna have this waiting list, there must be overflow sites for folks to go somewhere safe. Um, and also, you know some of the sites you, you have to talk about like how do we define what an overflow site is and some of these sites, maybe they'll let people sleep on cots, but they have to be out at six in the morning. so think about that realistically you have a young child and it's winter and you need to leave at six in the morning so, Really, what we need for these overflow sites are places where families can stay. They can have a sense of safety and security. They can stay there throughout the day, and they can um, be supported in the in the crisis that they're experiencing um, of of homelessness.
2: Um, Yeah, Bill, uh, uh, just piggybacking on on what you were asking, that uh, Greg Abbott, governor of Texas, has just announced another twenty five thousand that he is going to be busing, largely to New York City, not so much to Massachusetts as far as I know, um, and uh, he just, he looks at what are called sanctuary cities, and he manages to bus as many migrants uh, away from Texas to these sanctuary cities. Uh, many of us believe it's in a sort of punitive, cynical, horrific way of manipulating people, and and uh, but at the same time, those people are people with families, and they need a place to stay. Catherine, what do you think Massachusetts, I mean, should we be budgeting more money? Should we be building more uh, lodging? What, what should we be doing that we're not doing?
11: Um, yeah, I mean, it's a complicated question, but the bottom line is that Massachusetts as a state should be concerned and should find ways to take care of these families who are experiencing homelessness. I mean, a child on the street with nowhere to sleep is a child on the street with nowhere to sleep. Um, but I do want to just go back and address that, as we said before this problem existed way before the so-called migrant crisis um, you know there were families i we have some data here from a globe article that that from back in 2022 so predating this you know migrant crisis there were 2452 ea applications only 840 of them were approved for shelter so the the the, the, the system's inability to provide the shelter necessary for homeless families prior to the migrant crisis Existed and was extreme. There were many, many more families who needed shelter prior to the migrant crisis who were unable to get it. So it's not really fair to say that the migrant crisis has caused the system to fail. The system was already broken well before that. Um, And I think that's a really important thing to know. Like the system, it's a complicated problem, but it's a problem that Massachusetts, we need to figure out ways to solve because we just can't be a state that has, you know, small children and pregnant women. Sleeping on the street without a place to stay. Uh,
2: Marion, it was just, Claire Higgins was just on here, and she was saying it's not their problem; it's our problem. Maybe you could speak about that.
8: Yeah, absolutely. I I believe it is our problem. It's our collective problem, and I think, as Catherine has said, as 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 a Commonwealth, right, as the name implies, we certainly cannot have. Children out on the street. Um, we have to remember that at the core of the emergency assistance shelter program, it is a it is a program for children. Um, an adult without children or an adult who's not pregnant cannot access this system, this state funded family shelter system. It's a program that that is on behalf of the children. And we have to take care of our Children, in the children in our community. Um, ultimately, if we don't do that, the long-term costs are going to be so much higher. If we think about children being separated from their parents, ending up in the foster care system, or other situations that, that are not beneficial to them. Um, so I, I think we, we must take um, the action to provide um, for the children in our community that need our assistance.
2: Um, I just want to take this opportunity to point out both, both Bill and I are deeply committed to community legal aid. We've been involved in it for a long time, Community Legal Aid and Central West Justice Center, which uh, does this heroic and uh, indispensable uh, work. Um, it, right now, they are involved in fundraising activities, and I know that on Wednesday, I'll be in Greenfield uh, trying to raise money for CLA and the work that... You, Marion, and you, Catherine, do so well and it's so important. I know Bill feels the same way with respect to Hampshire County. So uh, I just want listeners to understand these are our neighbors. These are people who make our community richer. And we have uh, heroes like uh, Marion Hone and Catherine A.D. Bell to thank for uh, helping them help themselves. Meanwhile, it is Friday, and we want to thank you all for joining us on Talk to Talk this week. Remember, like these two in studio, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk.
1: Are you or someone you know addicted to drugs? Narcotics Anonymous can help. NA has been helping addicts since 1953. We are recovering addicts who meet regularly to help each other stay clean. We offer meetings and services online and in person. To find one of our meetings or to get information on what services are offered, visit www.westernmassna.org or call us at 1-866-NA-HELP-YOU. That's 1-866-624-3578.
3: Massachusetts now requires you to recycle fluoride and other mercury-containing bulbs. A tiny amount of mercury is an essential element in energy-efficient lighting. But when you throw these bulbs in the trash, they can break and release mercury into the environment. Do your part. Keep mercury out of the environment. Recycle used fluorescent bulbs. For convenient recycling solutions, visit lamprecycle.org or almr.org. Homeowners, visit earth911.org for a drop-off center near you. Brought to you by the National Electrical Manufacturers
13: Association.
3: WHMP Northampton and WRSI